What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right, what's up and welcome back everyone to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Today I'm joined by Travis Hornsby. Travis, thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, man, I'm excited. So um, everybody who follows me on Twitter, which is pretty much like my whole following, um, don't know if you guys have followed Travis yet, but I don't think there's a better person in the entire industry about student loans. Like, I, I don't know where you get all this information. Like somehow I feel like you're putting breaking information every day about, about something with student loans that I've never heard about or seen anywhere. Like, do you, do you have sources like in the, in, in the industry or like, how are you so in the know before everybody else? Definitely. <laughs> I mean, I, um, uh, I've got a lot of people you know, that I exchange texts with that I call regularly, you know, I mean, kind of like a, a journalist that's just on, on the student loan beat, but I've been doing it for a while. And, um, and I'm probably one of the top 20 student loan experts out there and the world's not that large. So I, you know, interface with a lot of people, some of which are a little bit less public facing than me just to bounce ideas off of. And so that's how I usually get some of the juicy breaking info before other people. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Well, before we kind of dive into it, give everybody a little intro of who you are, what you do, and I'm sure they'll maybe have some people who might be reaching out to you. Yeah. I run studentloanplanner.com. We've got about 10 consultants, CFP folks that provide student loan advice for a one-time flat fee. So we are kind of sort of the top, uh, of the funnel for somebody that's got a big financial problem with their student loans that they want to figure out what to do. So especially people with six figures of student loan debt for a few hundred bucks, we can generally save somebody at least 10 times our fee of a few hundred bucks. Uh, so that's pretty impactful. You know, a lot of times yeah. we say people 50, 50,000, hundred thousand or more. Uh, and it's just because student loans are really complicated. You know, if anybody with student loans knows that they've been paused for three years, but there's also all these temporary relief programs like the PS left waiver, the IDR waiver, Biden's cancellation initiative, the new income-based repayment plan he's coming out with. So all of these create unique planning opportunities that if you know the intricacies can save somebody a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to go through all of that today, but I think the best place to start is like, can you just give us an update of what's even going on with student loans right now? I mean, you're tweeting every day about like the hearings that are happening and like, I mean, everybody was talking about forgiveness for a while and then now that doesn't seem likely. So like what, what's going on? Yeah, like President Biden like is trying to do what he views as right by borrowers, but he's also trying to get out of a really difficult political trap, right? So if you think about what happened previously, you had President Trump extend the student loan pause going into his election, yeah, right? And then that was because he wanted to win. <laughs> and then Biden extended that pause when he got uh, sworn in. And he 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 did that, I think, more because he thought it was the right policy versus like that it was the right politics. But then if you look at like what happened in January 2022, he extended the pause for a long time when he said it was going to be the last pause. Now, why did he go back on his word there? 
It's because his signature legislation failed, the Build Back Better plan. And so the progressives in his party were very upset, and he had to give them a win. And that was an easy win, was to extend the student loan pause after he said it would be the final one. So fast forward to now, and we literally have – we're on the third final pause of the student loan, you know, zero interest, zero payments. And the reason is because I think Biden can't really figure a way out politically to turn payments on again to avoid having – you know, highly educated voters, which are a key part of the Democratic Party coalition, blaming him for doing so, right? So he tied this cancellation plan to the end of the student loan pause around August of last year. And then, you know, Republican-led states challenged the legality of that, and then they extended the pause, and we're stuck in this, like, in-between phase of what's going to happen, right? And on top of that, there's another lawsuit brought by SoFi to end the pause, because the administration hinted in their oral arguments at the Supreme Court over the cancellation case that if they lose, they'll probably extend the pause again. Yeah. <laughs> and so it would be, though. yeah. So I feel like this whole part, like how I've been talking to clients is okay, well, let's hold off, right? Like until the changes come, let's not make any big decisions. And they've been saying over and over, last pause. But it seems like everybody was saying, okay, th- this is the last pause. And because the like COVID emergency is over, he doesn't have authority to pause again, but then that's all I heard for months. And then the last couple of weeks, I I think you were tweeting about the fact that there's the the gov or the lawyer is threatening that they'll just extend it again if forgiveness doesn't go through. And so, do, do they have the ability to do that again? Well, what's really clear about student loans is they have the authority to do something until somebody challenges them on it. Yeah, I guess I mean, that's if, fair. I mean, if you think about what Trump did, did he have the authority to extend the pause? I don't know. I think it's questionable. Uh, you know, but he did it and then nobody challenged it. And so that it wasn't questioned, you know, did Biden have the authority to do the PSLF waiver? Uh, maybe not, but he did it. Nobody challenged it. So it happened. <laughs> um, same That's thing on like uh, others. So like that, it's just a reality of, of the politics on this is do something. If somebody challenges it, it's not legal if they rule against it. But if they don't, then it's legal. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, and so that's that's the reality is that, yeah, like is extending the pause past the emergency, like, you know, legal? Probably not, but it is legal if no one challenges it. Yeah, and if and, he does it and then even if it's illegal and people are trying to overturn it, but voters see that he's making that step, like to him, that's a political win anyways. I mean, so what I would do, like a lot of this is like just reading tea leaves based off of like what's happened in the courts and like politics and stuff. So if you look back at the eviction moratorium during, you know, the kind of like earlier part of this uh, last year, I think um, they lost at the Supreme Court on the eviction moratorium, but they were like, but we'll let it go a couple more months because we want it to be an orderly expiration. Right. And then Kavanaugh was the swing vote on it. And so like literally they knew they were going to lose on the eviction moratorium, but they extended it anyway after they had you know pressure from the progressive base because it would buy a little bit of extra time, and they felt like they needed to do it. I think all you know presidents do this in some fashion or another. So I'm not necessarily saying anything about you know the Biden administration being you know to blame or something. I just think that you have to think about like what is in the interest of the person who's in the White House on the student loan stuff to kind of predict what this means for borrowers. And that's really what it's about is what does this mean for borrowers? And, and I would say that like the whole, Oh, my loans are paused. I don't have to think about it. It's actually like a really gross error, uh, like a gross negligent error (laughs) almost. Um, And so the reason for that is because there's these other things going on, like the IDR waiver where people could get in some cases, their entire loan balance forgiven. If you consolidate it before this deadline at the end of the year, 
So that's a really big deal. And if people are thinking, oh, my loans are paused, I don't have to think about this, and they're thinking wrong. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I, I know that the student loan thing is so interesting to me because like so much of my follower base has to deal with this. It's not something that very I almost have no clients that are really in the student loan thing. So I, I have so much more to learn and dive into it. So I think let's kind of go, you know, segment this over to. I think you started to get into like, what does this mean for me? But like, what are some of the changes that we think are coming and how do people start to plan for them? I think the single biggest deal that people need to be aware of, like for your clients, you mentioned like somebody with 40,000 of student loans, right? So what's an example of a client that you might have that's got 40,000 of student loans with some kids? Like, tell me like the incomes for each of the spouses and their family size. Like just, you know, just curious. Yeah, I have like two clients I met with last week. They have like 13,000, 8,000 left. They make like 160. Um, and they already have all the money set aside to to pay them off. They've just been holding in a savings account, thinking through that. And then my other ones are like, hey, like you know, I have maybe two lawyers that have it and their combined household income is like 800,000. <clears> so I think that puts it in a little different position. Typically who I'm working with are, mostly really high income people or their business owners. And so only a very select few of them have student loans because a lot of them are like mid thirties and they pay them off pretty aggressively post-school. Sure. Like, I mean, so let's maybe consider somebody more in like the top, like third of the income distribution instead of like top 10% or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Like, so, so say you've got a hundred thousand income, you've got 40,000 of student loans just as a hypothetical here. And then let's say like family size of maybe like five. Yeah, that's perfect. And all right, let's see here. And I'm going to file the taxes separate. Filing separately. Yeah. So, all right. So here's like what's really interesting, I think. So let's say you've got this family size of five, 100,000 income each. So household income of 200 grand. And each of them have got 40K of loans from undergrad. So in the past regime of student loans, which this is like the old income-based repayment plans, like there was no way you could get forgiveness on this. Like if you're in the private sector, no, nothing you could do but pay it off, right? But under this new repay plan that Biden's proposed, which is not finalized yet, but it's likely to come out at some point later this year. So your payment, even if you're making this $200,000 income, if you save absolutely nothing for retirement and you're you're filing your taxes separately. Your payment is only about 130 a month. So if you think about 130 a month payments and a 40K income, you can make that payment for 20 years and still have your entire balance left over. So effectively, you're taking somebody that used to be a candidate for going for loan forgiveness and making them a candidate that, or sorry, used to go for paying their loans off and making them a candidate for loan forgiveness. So this is not affecting your 800,000 income lawyers but it's very much impacting anybody that has like a household income below 300,000 that has any kind of student loan balance whatsoever, especially if they have a couple of kids or more. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. How do you approach the conversation with somebody? So that, that example right there, right? So it was like 13 or 1400 bucks a year by 20 years. So let's say that's 25,000 on a 40,000 balance. Do you find like, I feel like when I've talked to people about similar discussions like that, they're like, I'd rather pay it off with that difference than what if some like people, I feel like a lot of people are worried of like, what if that change happens and then it doesn't get approved or continues forward. And I'm like, 
that doesn't seem likely to me, but some people are really adamant about just getting rid of them because in the back of their mind, they're super anxious about them. I think it's fine. I think it depends on the client. That depends on the individual. Like if you want to get rid of it, then then more power to you, do it. But you should at least understand the implications. So for yeah. example, if if you if that person that I mentioned maxed out their 401k, so if yep. they took, you know, 22,500 out of that 100 grand and they put it away into um their 401k pre-tax, pre-tax yeah, their their AGI would be lower. Yep. And in that case their uh, their their payment would drop from like 130 a month to about 40, 40 a month. And yeah. that, that well, actually, I mean, yeah, that, that person, you have HSA, you have 401k. <laughs> I mean, you, you have a bunch of things that you really could do to help out with that as well. Well, and so if you do all of it, then what you do with this new, these new rules for income-based repayment is it also cuts the interest rate because all of your interest that's not required to be paid based off of what your monthly payment is, is, is subsidized. So effectively what that does is it cuts your interest rate down to like zero or 1%. And so then your student loans are effectively frozen and inflation is just like eating away at the value of your loans, right? So I think what what matters is like growing wealth and you can grow wealth by paying down debt, but you can also grow wealth by growing assets. And so a lot of times I think you have to ask yourself the question, what's the most important thing for that individual? A lot of people don't get jazzed about maxing out their 401k and HSA. And somebody that is likely to get that jazzed about it probably wants to be debt-free and not have to think about their student loans. So I completely understand where people would be coming from in that regard. But um, but you know, it's really a choice. And it's not been a choice ever before, for especially for undergrad borrowers. For grad borrowers that have six figures of student loans, it's always kind of been a, you're probably going to go for income-based repayment unless you went to a state school or you were careful with how you spent money in grad school. Um you know, a lot of our folks, our average debt balance is maybe about 280000 for a client. So it's really quite large. And we've yeah. had about 11,000 clients. So this is representing really the top, you know, people in terms of debt balances. But these people also usually earn very high incomes and have a lot of education too. But, you know, the 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 thing is, is yes, these programs could potentially go away. But my point is just if you have 40,000 of debt and you're paying nothing and that 40,000 of debt is going to be 40,000 three years from now, as long as you're taking that money and doing other things with it, you're not losing ground, you're gaining ground. Yeah. Okay. Can we take a step back on this income-driven plan and can we, can you explain to everybody here, like, what are the changes? Like, what exi- like I get the example, I get that dollar amount, but how did you even like come up with that and why for everybody to understand, like why the marrying file separately as well? Because I think- Everybody thinks get married, file together, lower taxes, but it's not always that simple or even the right decision. I mean, yeah, like during the pandemic, there was some wrinkles with unemployment benefits where filing separately actually can make you save money on taxes, which is not usually the case. In general, filing separately costs you more money in taxes. The real reason to do so from a student loan borrower's perspective is because you're allowed to count only your income in the payment instead of both of the incomes in the payment. And that's also mostly relevant when you've got somebody that only has student, that one spouse has student loans and the other spouse doesn't have the student loans, right? So what if you had that situation you just said, this spouse, the income earner has student loans, this spouse, no student loans, but no income. Well, then you file a joint in most cases, not not always. There's some exceptions. Uh, There's some community property states where it's advantageous to split income 50-50 in that case and pay even less. What I want people to know is instead of here's all the loopholes for student loans, what you should just know is that there's a ton of loopholes about student loans. So you can read about them. We've got a lot of stuff. If you type in student loan planner and student loan loopholes, you will find like an exhaustive list of a lot of them on Google. But 
you know, I would say most people are not going to want to read all those and they're just going to want to minimize their payments. And, uh, and so a lot of, you know, a lot of financial planners come to us too, for their very complex clients. Um, we have very like the hardest cases, uh, on student loans come to us because it's just not a good use of advisors time to research a lot of these nuanced cases. Um, I mean, there's so, and there's some really hard ones, like, it's it's not at all easy, you know, some of the stuff that's happening with IDR waiver, like this one person was wondering, you know, why am I not being forgiven? Like I qualify based on the terms of the waiver, like I'm supposed to have my minimum number of payments counted now. And uh, and lo and behold, it was because she wasn't working at a not-for-profit at that very moment. And therefore she didn't qualify because the rules had changed from the prior waiver to this waiver. And so people might even be tuning out like waiver. What is he talking about? It's just all these temporary programs, the executive orders that keep coming out of the White House that really have a huge impact on people that we stay stay up to date with. So when an advisor does that, does, does typically the advisor just pay you that fee of whatever it would be and then to take off take that off their plate? I, I would say like sometimes, I would say more often than not, the, the client does, you know, okay. so- Mostly because it's, you know, most advisors are not charging such a premium fee that it makes sense to have that be a part of their client's cost. Like, you know, most clients just, if they need the attorney, they go pay the attorney, right? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So let's go a little bit more into the specifics of what the income-driven plan is now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, like right now you pay 10% of your income, the deductions about uh, 150% of the poverty line. So for um, a family of four, uh, that works out to about like $45,000 before you have to pay anything. Absolutely. So everything everything above that, you pay 10%. What uh, Biden's doing is changing that where instead of a deduction of 45000 that deduction's going up to 67000 So he's raising a ton, the threshold. For a family? For a family, yeah. yeah. And then if you file separately, then the deduction for each spouse in that example that you you don't have to pay anything until you're making at least sixty seven thousand as a family. If you file separately, then neither spouse has to pay anything before they're making above fifty six thousand. So effectively, like you could literally have a case of like a family of four and have them be able to earn like one hundred ten thousand of income before they have to pay anything. This is the the new plan that's coming out. Super and, good. Yeah, and if your loans are undergrad only, you pay five percent of your income instead of ten. And uh, and all the interest above your required payment is also going to be subsidized. So these are all major changes. It's going to totally redo the way higher education is financed. They're really trying to create free college is what they're really trying to do. Um, and who knows if this survives any kind of potential legal challenges, but they probably they probably will survive. Uh, yeah. And so this is this is going to have major implications for how people pay for college. Honestly, a lot of uh, if this sticks. A lot of people's activities around 529 savings are pretty uh, pretty irrelevant. Yeah. Hmm, that's really interesting. Unless uh, you're ultra wealthy, you know, that's, I mean, really like 90% of people don't need 529 plans anymore if this IDR plan stays around long-term. So how do you do that from a planning perspective? Like, I think in the back of my head, my thought is that makes a lot of sense, but things change so quickly. So I, you know, most of my clients, their kids are young, right? They're like, zero to seven or eight years old. I have some outliers, but it's like, okay, they might not be going to school for 18 years. And I guess everything today is pushing towards, well, if anything, it's probably going to get better other than worse on how college goes. But like, 
do you approach that conversation with here's what is going on here's what this tells me what do you guys think and obviously now the 529 to roth helps but that's still not if you fund two hundred thousand dollars for your kids to go to private school out of state i think it depends on like the person people only have so much space in their brains and if you think about like the typical american when when i say typical american i mean somebody that has enough wealth to plan uh but not so much wealth that they have people falling all over themselves to work with them right so think about like you know you've got somebody that's you know a family income below 50,000 like they're probably getting served with high fee insurance products and things like that because traditional financial planners can't afford to work with them and then there's the you know anesthesiologist making 400k a year and up that everybody wants to work with them and so they're getting great advice from somebody and then there there's all these people in between and so for the, all these people in between, like, do you want to be putting 300 a month in a 529? Well, you're probably not maxing your 401k. So I'm saying like, what I'm saying is, is you'd be much better off just focusing on the 401k. Those assets don't show up on the FAFSA. So you're going to get, your kid's going to get more aid because of that. 529 accounts do show up on the FAFSA and count against you. So that's, that's my main thought is just, you know, if you're having to choose between scarce, where do you put your scarce funds? People are better off paying down their home mortgage and they're better off putting money away for retirement than they are worrying about a 529 account. Interesting. What if what if they those kids get to college though and these programs are not as good as they were and they're going to have to be able to pay pretty much the full amount? So, I mean, you can always take a home equity loan out of your home and pay for it if you absolutely had to, right? Um, I think in reality... The reason college is so expensive is because you can borrow unlimited sums through the federal loan programs, which are then underwritten by income-based repayment. So that's why it's so expensive. If that goes away, college costs will plummet. And if it doesn't go away and it sticks around, college prices will continue to grow much faster than the rate of inflation. So I think you know if you are very wealthy, then 529s make a ton of sense. What's well, very wealthy? Somebody with you know projected net worth in the millions um, going into college with their kids. If you're below that millions of net worth going into college for your kids, then you're much better off going through this, you know, IDR type of strategy and yeah. borrowing the maximum. Yeah, that's been my thought. I definitely have um uh earlier or lower income clients too that are like I've had for a while. And for a lot of them, we're not prioritizing 529 plans or college. But then I have, you know, I'd say my most recent 30 clients are all pretty much in the million net worth now with young kids. And so for them, it's like, well, we do have plenty of extra money. And the 529 plan is something, especially in a state with like, it's different when you're in Florida. For me, for a lot of people in Florida, we're like, if you really want to fund it, a 529 is a little bit more attractive as of this year. But a lot of times it makes sense for me to say, let's do a taxable account. And if we have to pay for it, when it comes there, you'll be able to do that. Well, yeah, you earned, um, well, if you don't use it for the qualified expenses, then it's earned, uh, it's taxes, ordinary income too, right? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I mean, it's like, is it really that good? I mean, you know, tax drag on total stock market index funds pretty low. Um, so ultimately, like, like I, that's, I think that 529 usage for that million dollar net worth client in their 30s, like, makes a lot of sense. Like, they're probably not going to get anything in the way of merit aid or, um, or need-based aid. And sure, they probably want to be able to pay for college out of pocket. Um, but most people are are not that person. So that's my point is just, and that, and that's, we have a, we've reached some of those clients that have the net million net worths and up that happen to have 500,000 of student loans from dental school. 
Um, but we also reach a lot of people that are 50, 60,000 a year incomes uh, each that have the 100,000 from their master's program that would never be able to save for retirement or start a brokerage account if it wasn't for some of these income-based plans. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Do you ever talk with clients about, Hey, it doesn't seem like we're going to be able to save a ton. And even if we could, maybe it's not the best path. Like, do you ever have say, well, Hey, you, you could just help your, your kid pay their student loans after college. I feel like that's something that I feel like nobody ever talks about, but I feel like there's this like guilt as a parent sometimes to say, Oh, I'm not able to help provide for my kid's education. Whether it's like they had to focus on their retirement, maybe they had a later start, whatever it is. But there's nothing to say that instead of saving now, they couldn't be like, I'll pay 50% of your loan payment. Or I could take, even if you do the income-driven plan, I could help pay that amount for you because I wasn't able to help you before. Yeah. I mean, I think the the main thing parents should be worrying about is not being a financial burden to their kids. Like, I think that's the the number one thing like to yeah, worry about point. because because you can you can get loans for your kid, you can co-sign, you can do parent plus loans, you can do all that, and that's fine. But if you think about, you know, Medicaid, right, or for nursing homes, like most most uh, middle class families have zero plan for their assisted living at all. Like there's there's no nursing home plan, there's no like long term care plan at all. And so the typical American like is, you know, gets starts having trouble living alone at home, and they didn't save enough to fund for their nursing home hundred thousand dollar a year expense. And so then you talk to some local estate attorney. They put your, you know, primary residence in a trust, hope that you make it five years until you go into the nursing home. And then literally the nursing home is hundred percent paid for by Medicaid. And that's like what the typical American does because the typical American does not save anything uh, for nursing homes, even for middle-class people. Right. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just, I think that that's the thing that people should focus on is like, how do I save enough for my retirement? Like, am I going to go for like that, you know, the vast majority of people like for long-term care, if I need it and just be comfortable with the, the Medicaid path um, and, and make that the focus instead of like, Oh, I've got to like pay for college for my kid. Like, don't think that's necessary. Hmm. Interesting. So your thought really more so is take care of everything else first because of the way that all this stuff is going, especially if you're middle class and if you can help us do with college, do it, but probably one of the bottom priorities. Yeah. Like, we have clients that have borrowed like 600,000 for parent plus loans for like four kids and they're paying back maybe 10% of it through income driven repayment plans. So Crazy. if, I mean, because we're utilizing the legal rules based on the way they're written. Right. So, I mean, I wouldn't say go do that. If you have a multi-million dollar net worth, that's not the smart thing to do. But if yeah. you're, if you're a, you know, underpaid teacher or police officer somewhere and you're making a decent income, but you're not going to be rich and you're looking at a bunch of hard decisions like mortgaging your house, you know, to pay for your kid's college. Like don't do that. <laughs> There's a lot of good alternatives. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So can you go like educate everybody a little bit on new PSLF changes? Yeah. Like basically you can get credit for almost anything that you did with your loans for PSLF. If you were employed by a the right kind of employer. So what most people need to do if you're currently at a qualifying employer is just consolidate and send in a fresh application at studentaid.gov slash PSLF. So if you do that, you'll get uh, whatever credit you qualify for. So I would just do that before the end of the year. And and that's the best thing you can possibly do right now. You might get your loans completely forgiven. Uh, many billions have been forgiven through this program this 
past year alone. So that's a big temporary opportunity because usually you've got to be making the right kind of payments when you're employed uh, at the right kind of employer. But they've waived all those requirements about making the right kind of payments. It's just basically being at the employer. Yeah. And so you qualify by being in some public service job. And then how long does it have to be for these people to reach that forgiveness? 120 months of payments. Uh, so, But a lot of people were in forbearance or deferment or they were paying under the wrong kind of plan. And so this is, again, like the Biden administration using you know the rules around COVID very aggressively to deliver relief to people. So you just need to send in the application for it, which is why I mentioned in the studentaid.gov slash PSLF website. Yeah. Okay. Because I feel like a lot of people didn't know that the last few years count, even though they weren't making payments. Um, and then I also think people, a lot of people just assume that they have loans and it's, you know, they've been paying and they're just going to be gone. And I don't know if everybody knows you actually have to like take steps to make sure this happens. Yeah. What about with the income driven plan? I, I think this is another, I, I've heard people talk about the plan and they're like, okay, you know, Hey, I heard about this new income driven plan, but like, what do I even do? And what are the steps? And I want to make it really clear for people to understand that like, Hey, if you want this, this is what you need to go do. Yeah. I like apply for it first, like get onto the repay plan. If you're not on an income based plan at all. Um, I will tell you this though. There's a lot of complicated stuff going on with student loans right now. Like a lot of complicated stuff that have huge implications for people. So I'll give you one example. There's a forgiveness program that is a 20 year forgiveness program instead of 25 years. And it's getting cut off probably by the end of the year for anybody that's not on it. So if you have rapidly increasing income, like a dentist, you probably want to take action before the end of the year so you can lock in the 20-year forgiveness instead of the 25-year forgiveness. So that's just one example of why I would say someone that's got over 100000 really needs to prioritize this right away. And that would be studentloanplanner.com slash book. It would be the way to get a plan for that. Somebody that's got more modest loans, I would take the wait and see approach. I would try to pay as little as possible on my loans right now. Um, I would take anything you wanted to put on your loans and put it into you know a high yield yeah. savings or money market account or in your four and a half percent interest and just wait until the loan payments and interest start again. And then then, then I, and then and then well then I would say either dump it on the loans and pay it off or see what these new IDR rules are and see if you could save money by not paying them off because that's the real thing that a lot of people are, need need to consider, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I've been talking to a lot of clients about that too. And I think there's a lot of people, like some of my high income people, they've been like, well, let's just save it and let's pay it all off as soon as they start back up because we want to get rid of it. Like I was just working with a client where like wife works at Meta, husband works at Google. They make a stupid amount of money combined and they have like 90,000 student loans left and they just got a bonus that would cover all of that after taxes. And they wanted to go pay it off. And my big thing was like, let's wait and see. Cause if it continue, somehow if it got extended another year or so, you might as well keep that money on the sideline. But two, they want to get into real estate and they want to buy a nice car and all these things. I was like, I don't like when, when the start sent to start to start back up, their payment would have been like, I don't know, 1400 bucks a month or something like that. And it was like, don't get a, he wanted to get a $1,500 a month car payment. I'm like, you can't just change your finances. And all of a sudden in three months have an additional three K a month because they're behind on some of their other savings too. Yeah. Like, you know, your student loans are not going anywhere. Like, you know, they're, they're not that scary of a, a you know, a debt really, if, because they have the most flexibility of any kind of debt that I know of. Like, if you think about the Google True. person, like let's say they get laid off unexpectedly, you know, you could apply for income based 
based on that change in income and get a $0 a month payment with zero interest. Like that's very unusual. There, that's There's no car loan that you can just say, oh, I got laid off. Let me reset my payments to zero and I'm going to have no interest while I get back on my feet, right? So you have yeah. to bake that you have to bake that in in that decision making like you know if you're very confident that you're going to be employed long term at a place like that then yeah use your bonus to pay it off but i think what we tell people is life not loans so focus on really achieving what you want in your life now and in the future and then make the loan plan like part of that and a lot of times people kind of get so cuz most of the stuff on the internet's really like anti debt emotion driven pay down fast you're going to be wealthy if you do this and that's probably partially true, but it's just sort of designed to make you focus on the problem instead of like the goals. Yeah. Yeah. I find this a lot with clients. I know this is a different example, but like, you know, I'll sit down with a client and they'll have a $30,000 car loan at 2%. And they're like, oh, I just want to get rid of this so bad and free up this cash flow. And I'm like, you do the math and over five years, you're going to pay like 2,500 bucks of interest, like total over five years. Like, would you rather pay that off over two years and save a thousand dollars of interest or would you rather invest while the market's down? And I think we're all, I mean, I don't know about you, but almost everybody I talked to, we all grew up in the way of like no debt, pay down debt, no debt on cars, mortgage gone as fast as you can. And maybe that becomes more true in the interest rate environment now we're facing than what it was two or three years ago. But I think we all just have we're all anti-debt and we're all told that no debt means freedom. And if you have debt, then you're a slave to the debt and all that. And it's like, it's not quite that black and white in my mind. Yeah. Like I made, I made like a 5% spread in mortgage this year because inflation was 8% and my mortgage was below three. And so the value of my mortgage debt dropped 5% in real purchasing yeah. power terms. And so I made you know, tens of thousands of dollars on my mortgage getting devalued, you know, um, and not paying that down. Right. So I think it's just what works for the person. That's what it comes yeah. down to. Yeah. Okay. What else do people need to know that we haven't talked about so far around the student loans, changes coming, things they need to think of? I think that's really it. I think just, you know, if you have a lot of debt, get a plan. If you don't have a lot of debt, just be aware of not letting it get in the way of other goals and just be cautious about paying it down until we get some more clarity out of Washington. Yeah. So if, if somebody is looking to work with you, because I think you guys have an amazing resource, I know your fees aren't a lot, is right now the best time or is the best time with some of the uncertainty coming to say, you know, let's maybe wait till the decision is made over the next three or four months and then reach out? I would say above 100,000, now's the time. Below 100,000, wait. <laughs> yeah. So that would be the advice. And, and yeah. what are your, are your fees range based on the person and the situation? Right now they don't. In the future, okay. when this new plan comes out, we're probably going to charge you a lower price for people with undergrad-only debt. Um, but right now, it's just a few hundred dollars for everybody that wants to sign up. That's crazy. That's awesome, man. I think what you're doing is really, really cool, really helpful. I'll make sure in the show notes to link to here. And everybody that's listening, I definitely would say go reach out. There's literally no better resource out there for this. Also, that's an absurdly low fee. Um, if I even thought I knew what I was doing, but I wanted to check, I would also go pay you to just confirm because it is complex. Like I'm, I'm a financial planner. I feel like I know a lot about financial planning. I know a good amount about student loans, but even I don't think I would be like the perfect expert to totally handle it where reaching out to you, I think would make a lot of sense. So, um, thanks for joining us, man. Where are the best places for everybody to, you know, go follow you? Just studentloanplanner.com is the best place. Just okay. go there and you'll find what you need. And his ad on Twitter is student loan Trav. 
definitely a great resource on there to follow. So I'll plug that for you. But thanks everybody for coming and listening today. We will see you back next week.